Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Betwixt This World and That of Grace for the fourth Sunday in Lent, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 2nd, 2008. A few years ago, Sister Anne surprised me in our therapy session with a rather abrupt question. Why do you pastor types place yourselves on such a pedestal, she asked. Why are you so shocked at your faults and failures? Why not come down and join the human race? Since I had never viewed myself this way, it became clear that I was blind to something about myself that in her professional judgment was obvious. I think that among other things, Sister Anne was trying to help me understand the rather enigmatic punchline of Jesus that concludes the gospel reading for this week from John chapter 9, verses 1 to 41. In John chapter 9, 39 to 41, we read, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who will see and those who see will become blind. When some Pharisees then asked if they themselves were blind, Jesus responded, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In the Christian scheme of things, one of the most dangerous spiritual places you can live, oddly enough, is in the deluded notion that you are a fully sighted person. Conversely, one of the healthiest places to live is not only to acknowledge your spiritual blindness, sin, failure, contradictions, complicities, and ignorance, but to embrace that place as a good place to live. In acknowledging our blindness, we see. By insisting that we see fully and rightly, we remain blind. John chapter 9, 1-41, recounts the healing of a beggar who was blind from birth. But the details of the miracle itself comprise only about one-third of the narrative. Most of the story revolves around the disputes that the miracle provoked, followed by Jesus' punchline. There are so many fascinating details that merit attention. Precise descriptions about spit, mud, and the interrogation of parents that characterize an eyewitness account. The casual disinterest about Jesus on the part of the man who received the miracle the inexcusably cruel insinuation by the disciples that somehow human misfortune, the beggar's blindness, was somehow an act of God's punishment, the inherent skepticism and suspicion surrounding the plausibility of a genuine miracle, the complex factors at play that can prevent a miracle from evincing genuine faith, and the interactions amongst the characters in the larger drama. 
Jesus, his disciples, the blind beggar, his parents, the religious elite, and even the neighborhood community. The professional clergy made all the wrong moves in this story. They refused to believe eyewitness accounts of the miracle. They were more concerned to maintain ritual righteousness about Sabbath-keeping than to love another human being and rejoice in his wholeness. They blabbered pious cliches. They scapegoated the victim and hurled insults at him. They condescendingly claimed a spiritual elitism that intentionally humiliated the beggar. They demonized him as a sinner. And as they threw him out of the synagogue, their rage exploded. How dare you lecture us, they screamed. At that, their own tragic blindness was confirmed. And we learned that it was their spiritual blindness and not the physical blindness of the beggar that forms the central plot of the story. Of course, acknowledging your own spiritual blindness can be embarrassing. It's painful and threatening. It makes us feel vulnerable. To confess your own groping darkness and howling demons, your frustrations, fears, and failures unnerves us. And as unsettling as that confession is to make to your own self, there's the added anxiety of what others might think what they might say, or what they might do. We know from experience just how cruel and condescending, how derogatory and dismissive people can be towards the blind. Some people will kick you. They'll shoot the wounded. But Sister Anne knew what Jesus taught in this story, that healthy people embrace their fallenness and somehow make their peace with it. That's far different than self-pity, self-loathing, or rationalizing or invoking sin as an excuse. Spiritually sighted people recognize that acknowledging their blindness is an act of liberation, not a confession of bondage. Perfection is an awful and oppressive burden to bear. Only when we identify our symptoms can we experience a cure. The poet George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633, wrote a poem called Affliction. It's a masterful confession of his own blindness and inner struggles. It's a perfect prayer for the Lenten season. Listen to the poem, Affliction, by George Herbert. Broken in pieces all asunder, Lord, hunt me not, a thing forgot. Once a poor creature, now a wonder, a wonder tortured in this space, betwixt this world and that of grace. My thoughts are all a case of knives, wounding my heart with scattered smart. As watering pots give flowers their lives, nothing their fury can control 
while they do wound and prick my soul. All my attendants are at strife, quitting their place unto my face. Nothing performs the task of life. The elements are let loose to fight, and while I live, try out their right. O oh, help, my God, let not their plot kill them and me, and also thee, who art my life. Dissolve the knot. As the, as the sun scatters by his light all the rebellions of the night. Then shall those powers which work for grief enter thy pay, and day by day labor thy praise in my relief, with care and courage building me till I reach heaven and much more thee. George Herbert, Sister Anne, and Jesus all point us in the same direction this Lenten season. The journey toward the light begins when we acknowledge the dark. We can confess our blindness with confidence and no longer fear our fears. That's because, in the words of the English mystic Juliana of Norwich, before God, our sin will be no shame, but an honor. And how so? In her words, For God sees sin as sorrow and pain to his lovers, to whom, for love, he assigns no blame. Our failures do not prevent him from loving us. For books this week, I review a book by the National Academy of Sciences and Institute of Medicine. It's a short little booklet, only 70 pages. It's called Science, Evolution, and Creationism, Washington, D.C., the National Academies Press, 2008. In this third edition of a booklet first published in 1984 for a general audience, a 15-person committee of science's most prestigious organization argues that the evidence for evolution can be fully compatible with religious faith. Science and religion, they say, are different ways of understanding the world, and needlessly placing them in opposition reduces the potential of each to contribute to a better future. In its three main chapters, the booklet explores evolution and the nature of science, the evidence for biological evolution, and then creationist perspectives, including intelligent design, which they roundly reject as science. Creationist perspectives might be taught in a comparative religions class, the authors argue, as long as differing creation stories from the major religions all receive equal and neutral treatment. But they should not be taught as science, and not, as you sometimes hear, as a way to so-called so teach the controversy. 
The only controversy in science about evolution is not whether it happened, but how it happened. After these three main chapters, a section that has nine frequently asked questions, and then a bibliography for further reading, conclude the book. At 70 pages, a booklet this short raises all sorts of questions that can't be considered. Identifying creationists as young earthers is problematic, although later the authors admit that the word is a very broad term that embraces a wide variety of views. Praise is heaped upon science for its many advances and achievements, but there's nothing about the limits of science or its more inhumane accomplishments like nuclear weapons. In the understatement of the book, it's admitted that the question of just how life itself began is, quote, a challenging scientific problem, end quote, that has garnered little consensus among scientists. Nevertheless, it's refreshing for the National Academy of Sciences and the Institute of Medicine to admit that science is not the only way of knowing or understanding. Although the brief bibliography includes Daniel Dennett's extremely polemical book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, it was nice to see readers also directed to The Language of God by Francis Collins, head of the Human Genome Project, and Finding Darwin's God by Kenneth Miller, a Christian biologist at Brown University. I wish they had also included the Christian contributions of Stanford biologist Joan Roughgarden, the Harvard astronomer Owen Gingrich, and my favorite, the Cambridge physicist-turned-Anglican priest, John Polkinghorne. Science can neither prove nor disprove religion, the authors admit on the last page of the booklet. Since many religious beliefs involve entities or ideas that currently are not within the domain of science, it's false to assume that all religious beliefs can be challenged by scientific findings. Science, Evolution, and Creationism The National Academy of Sciences and Institute of Medicine For film this week, I review the Mexican film Amores Peros from the year 2000. In this, his debut film, director Alejandro González Iñárritu crafts a complex story in a manner that he also uses in his two subsequent films, 21 Grams in 2003, and the film Babel in 2007. All three films are long, they tell three separate stories that collide, unfold in a non-linear and non-chronological manner, and explore the darker aspects of human nature. The international English title for Amoris Peros is Love's a Bitch, which is unfortunate in my opinion because that rather jocular curse obscures the tragedy that stalks every character in this film. The figurative expression also misses the central role of dogs, dog fighting, 
and how and why dogs come off as better than humans in Inuritu's narrative. Octavio loves his sister-in-law, Susanna. He hates his brother and immerses himself in the seedy world of dogfighting. In a second narrative, Daniel leaves his wife, Julietta, for the supermodel, Valeria. But tragedy and unbelievable superficiality leave both of them only ruin and regret. And in the third story, El Chivo is a homeless wino who appears like a ghost as a background figure throughout the film until we learn his own story of broken family relationships that center around his daughter, Maru. Tragic fate and bad choices bring these three stories together. One way to view this film is through the closing caption provided by Inuritu himself. He says, we are what we have lost. In Spanish with English subtitles, 153 minutes. Amores Peros from the year 2000. And finally, for poetry, we consider we continue our Lenten series of poetry by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. This week, we've posted a poem by Herbert called The Quip. The merry world did on a day with his trained bands and mates agree to meet together where I lay and in all sport to jeer at me. First, beauty crept into a rose, which when I plucked not, sir, said she, tell me, I pray, whose hands are those? But thou shalt answer, Lord, for me. Then money came, and chinking still, what tune is this, poor man, said he? I heard in music you had skill, but thou shalt answer, Lord, for me. Then came brave glory puffing by in silks that whistled, who but he? He scarce allowed me half an eye, but then shalt answer, Lord, for me. Then came quick wit and conversation, and he would needs a comfort be, and to be short make an oration, but thou shalt answer, Lord, for me. Yet when the hour of thy design to answer these fine things shall come, speak not at large, say, I am thine, and then they have their answer home. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 2nd, 2008, the fourth Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.